0: Welcome to Pro's Tinted Glasses.
1: I'm Katie.
0: I'm Bailey. And we have a lot to catch up on.
1: We sure do. Gosh, just like some general life stuff. So you may or may not have noticed um, that we missed an episode a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I will say that that was mainly my fault. I have been moving. I've moved into a house. um, And life just kind of got away from me there for a few weeks.
0: (laughs) It definitely got away from me a little bit too. And then... I did get sick. I am better, but as you can tell, I did not find my voice. I have left it somewhere in June, so hopefully one day it comes back <laughs> to me.
1: Yeah, hopefully it's going to catch up to you here in July at some point. But for now, we'll just enjoy the, this extra sultry Bailey tone.
0: Yes, my mom was like, when you were little, you had like a toddler. You had such a deep, raspy voice for a toddler, and this just sounds <laughs> like it.
1: That's such a funny thing.
0: I was like, cool, so this is this is yeah. Toddler Bailey.
1: Well, welcome, Toddler Bailey, to the podcast.
0: <laughs> Toddler Bailey has a lot of thoughts.
1: <laughs> I mean, honestly, Toddler's a little bit too far back, but this episode is quite a throwback for the most part to our young adult days.
0: Oh, yeah, I do have some thoughts about the uh, young adult days when I was rereading, <laughs> getting ready for this. So we are going to talk about John Green today. And I know we've touched on like the Green Brothers briefly before, but this is going to be an episode around a lot more of John Green's stuff.
1: Yeah, I think we're going to kind of dive, we're going to do an overview of most of his works and we're just going to dive in wherever it feels right to. Um, But yeah, I thought we could do start with a little bit of like a history of John Green and the Green Brothers. I think this is like Bailey said, it's something we've touched on before, but um, you know, the Green Brothers are sort of the pinnacle of the internet as we know it today in a lot of ways. And if you
0: aren't really aware, they have their fingers in like a lot of different areas of the
1: internet. Like they literally so many, I like forget frequently just how many things they're involved in
0: right i was trying to explain to johnny like the the vlog brothers basically
1: Mm -hmm. and i was like
0: you know what we don't actually have time for everything (laughs) suffice to say on like nerdy youtube they were very big they're also authors they also now do well hank specifically does like a lot on tiktok and it it just they're well known they just weren't in your circle of youtube so can we watch this video please
1: Yeah, sort of like specifically, they started out on early YouTube and I think their like origin story is definitely Vlog Brothers, which is a project they started literally 15 years ago. I believe they started in 2007. Um where they had they were brothers that were very close but they had moved to different sides of the country and in an effort to like stay in contact more purposefully, they started a like one YouTube channel that they shared where like I think Hank uploads a video every Thursday and John uploads a video every Tuesday or something. And they they like have a time limit. Like I think they have to be under four minutes and it's just like quick conversation updates about their life. And it's definitely spiraled into now they're very aware that they have like a platform and that they're talking to an audience, but it definitely started out as a very cute little sibling just like project to keep in touch with each other, which was very funny.
0: Yeah, I actually recently watched a video on it because John was recording it, no joke, from my high school band room. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, dude, and I forgot what a yeah, what a fun format it was for talking to your sibling, even though now it has, as you said, evolved because they have a huge, huge audience.
1: Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I guess this would have been after John had released both... Looking for Alaska and Abundance of Catherine. So he would have already been somewhat well-known, which is probably kind of how they started getting a platform. But so he was like a well-known author. I don't think Hank was really known for anything specific at the time. Although this would have been around the time where he did... um, a bunch of like music shorts. I don't know if that was around the time or a little after, but he did um if you've ever seen the Axio Deathly Hallows video, that's Hank Green. He wrote that song. He wrote a lot of nerdy music that's really fun. But so he was definitely like up and coming in his own like niche platform. But I think John sort of started out as like by far the more famous brother.
0: Yes. But now I I think given just the way the internet works and the different things that they're focusing on right now. Hank is the one that's made it more to, like, the mainstream knowledge. Like, everybody, not everybody, that's too big of a generalization, but (laughs) people know, like, oh, John Green is the author and brother of the TikTok guy, Hank Green, (laughs) which I think we actually talked about a little more extensively on our Tumblr TikTok episode.
1: We definitely did, and I actually think we told this story or at least mentioned it on our Tumblr episode as well, but my favorite piece of John Green lore is that he is – like single-handedly responsible for the fact that you cannot edit Tumblr posts anymore after you post them. Um, in the wild wild west days of Tumblr when you reblogged a post you could just edit any part of the post including the parts that you did not contribute. So you could just edit someone else's post to say whatever you wanted um, and boy did people.
0: Yeah it's like if you could quote tweets but then you could just completely change the, the tweet that you're quoting. Yep. Um, and except that Tumblr was a chain of posts in the most part. So you could like change the original post to be something absolutely wild. And then everyone's response below it could stay the same. So it looks like they would be like, oh my gosh, I love that. And you put something totally appro- inappropriate as the original post, which is exactly what happened to John Green.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. I feel so bad for for that man. What's extra wild, though, is that now that my job is software development, and I, like, kind of have an insight into how software gets developed, it is absolutely wild to me that that was ever a thing that was allowed. Yes. There's this concept in software development of, like, the minimum viable product, and you have to, like, assign all the features that, like, these all have to be completed before we can push it out. And the fact that... Not letting someone edit someone else's post was not part of the MVP is so wild.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was fun. There were a lot of like good posts that came out of it. And then there was this bad post and it does remain both funny and exemplary of the Internet then. And and the fact that Tumblr was a pretty big social media at the time and one that John Green very frequently used.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was very active on Tumblr until this whole debacle. Um, and I do not blame him for not really going back afterwards.
0: Yes. I believe he even at one point just took a total social media break, given all the stuff going on with that and a few other things that happened on social media. He was just like, I am done. So
1: Yeah. So the Green Brothers, they do a lot of stuff. They do Crash Course. They do Sci Show, They do the Awesome Socks Club. I think they just announced today they're doing an Awesome Coffee Club, which is cool. Ooh, they have what? a lot of. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. It's like I, I'm not gonna do a good job of advertising it, but they like work with like local coffee farms and like they pay them above average and their coffee farms specifically that are committed to like not doing like extra deforestation because I know that coffee. Farms are, like, a really big, um, like, cause of deforestation. So, um, and then all the profits go to their um, initiative where they work, they're working with, I think, Sierra Leone. They're, like, building, they've raised, like, $28 million to date since 2007, since they first started Vlogbrothers for this, like, maternal excellence center in, um, I think, Sierra Leone, where it's going to be basically be devoted to lowering the, mortality rate of people's getting birthed. So in in, in addition to being really cool, really smart people, they're doing a lot of good in the world, which I really love to see.
0: Yeah, I'm going to look into that. They also have Projects for Awesome, which is a YouTube charity event, and VidCon was something that they did. So, you know, as Katie said, there's just so much that the Green Brothers do, and a lot of it is focused around work. And a lot of what Hank Green does on Tumblr is essentially some similar to Crash Course in small format. He does little bite-sized, trying to break down large scientific principles for, like, the average viewer scrolling. So Mm -hmm.
1: And he does a great job of it. So I just, I love the Green Brothers, generally. I think they're awesome.
0: Yes. Uh, But John Green, originally, definitely an author.
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, An author that I have been reading, I think, probably since... Not long after his first book out came out. His first book was Looking for Alaska, which came out in 2005. So I would have been around 12. Um, so probably I started reading it in either middle school or early high school. So within the first few years of that being released is when I became aware of him.
0: Yes, I was trying to remember, but, you know, Goodreads did not exist as a concept in <laughs> in roughly 2006. So I'm not sure what exact year that I read it, but I know I also read it pretty early um it would have been a book that stuck that jumped out at me just because of the cover so I don't know if it was like eighth grade or yeah like the first two years of high school but it was early on and I definitely loved the book back then
1: yeah same I remember being really mesmerized by the cover and if you're not familiar with the cover which actually I'm sure you have seen the cover but excuse me I'm getting a little bit of Bailey voice
0: we're not (laughs) together I'm not getting her sick I just want to defend (laughs) myself here
1: yeah, no, it's just, uh... All right, words are hard. Anyway, you've definitely seen the cover, but if it's not popping into your head right now, it's like a black cover with like a trail of smoke rising directly upwards. And uh, there's a candle very faintly at the very bottom. And I was reading that actually there was not originally a candle and it was just meant to be cigarette smoke. I don't know if there necessarily was a cigarette on the cover, but uh, as you can imagine, that caused controversy. And so they added the candle so as to not imply that it was cigarette smoke.
0: Even though if you've read the book, you know that cigarettes feature like pretty heavily, honestly, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. this series. I do want to throw out, we missed it again, th- this will be spoilers. Like we're going to oh, talk about yeah. what happens in the books. They came out the only one that's reasonably new is the Anthropocene Reviewed, and that one doesn't have a plot. So
1: yeah, we're not really, and I doubt we're going to go deep into that one. We're mainly going to talk about his fictional works, but yes, we are going to be talking deep into his entire bibliography. So
0: anyway, um, yeah, cigarettes do feature heavily. I think that's part of. I was thinking about this today on my run. I think that's part of like why it was a book that stuck out to me is because th- they were like kids doing things that were like quote unquote bad. And that definitely Mm -hmm. made it feel like they were, like, a little bit cooler. I know I definitely went through a phase where those are the kind of books that I wanted to read. Like, kids who were cooler than me that did stuff that I would never dream of doing, like sneak away from boarding school to smoke cigarettes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, being, like, the goodiest goody-two-shoes of all time in high school, which I'm sure comes as a shock to nobody, um, it was an interesting, like, escape like, kind of a fantasy for me to actually read books about kids who, you know, were doing things that felt very real to me. Like, there there was a difference between the books and the media that portrayed um, kids as just, like, being basically, like, little college students, and books like this where, you know, it, it felt real what they were doing. Like, it was not something I could identify with necessarily, because again, goody two-shoes. But the ways in which they were misbehaving were I could still identify with.
0: Right. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's not like they were doing anything crazy. This isn't like, 2005 would have kind of been, I got to look this up before I just talk out of my ass, I guess.
1: <laughs> it was pre-smartphone, because the well, first smartphone came out in 2005 or 2006.
0: Yeah, so I'm looking up specifically the Gossip Girl books and things like It Girl and the A-list, which is exactly what you're talking about, where, like, in Gossip Girl, they were ostensibly, like, sophomores and juniors in high school and they were going to like manhattan bars upper east side bars and getting Mm -hmm. served like cosmos yeah it came out in 2002 so Mm -hmm. like these things were popular during the same time looking for alaska came out but looking for alaska felt much more real to a high schooler like it was very clear that my life was never going to have the any reflection whatsoever on like what gossip girl or the a-list or it girls lives looked like and even to get more exactly it girl is a boarding school series Mm -hmm. but it was on a whole nother level whereas like in looking for alaska the life that they had seemed reasonable and relatable to me because even though i wasn't at boarding school there were definitely people at you know my age then in my school who were at parties who were smoking and drinking and all of that even if i was too goody two shoes to get invited 100%.
1: So let's do just a really, really brief overview of Looking for Alaska. We're not going to go full prose tinted recap, um, but just we're just going to give you some of the key points if you haven't read it or haven't read it in a while. Um, Looking for Alaska is a book about a boy named Miles who gets the nickname Pudge. He goes to a boarding school, makes some friends, including this girl, Alaska, who he pretty much instantly falls in love with. And starts doing things like drinking and partying and, you know, fun stuff, pranks and stuff with his friends. And Alaska leaves a party kind of hysterically and uh, drives drunk and dies in a car accident. And so that's about the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is really about Pudge and his friends trying to find meaning in her death, trying to understand why it happened, trying to understand how it affects them, um, and just really kind of dealing with that sort of real coming of age moment.
0: Yes, uh, it did get a 2019 Hulu miniseries as an adaptation, which I did watch immediately upon discovering it was a thing, and then reread the book.
1: <laughs> I, so I actually did not finish the miniseries, not because I didn't like it. I just I like started it and then got distracted and then kept forgetting to go back to it. Um, did you really like it, Bailey?
0: Um, I was just about to say not to like sidetrack into the criticism of another form of media. That's not really important here. I think because I knew what happened and just the way they put it together, I didn't feel a lot of the like driving tension that I felt with the book, especially the first time I read it. But I do think it was still good. I think it does. a de- I think it did a decent job of modernizing some of the things in Looking for Alaska that probably didn't age very well. I don't remember any specific examples from Looking for Alaska because I did not reread it. I do have some specific examples from, um, oh, my God, Paper Towns. Towns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pringle Boo* uh, From Paper <laughs> Towns about things that didn't necessarily age well. I think the Hulu miniseries did a little bit better of a job. It wasn't amazing, but it also wasn't, like, terrible. I didn't have to turn it off. It just didn't hold my interest as well.
1: I think based on some of the criticisms that I've been reading, and actually I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, Paper Towns was definitely the start of John Green's long battle with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which by the way was a term that was coined around this time um, in, in relation to Kirsten Dunst's character in Elizabethtown, which also came out in 2005. So, um, People often either talk about Alaska as a manic pixie dream girl. I think this falls a little bit more in line with Paper Towns, which we'll get to later. But Paper Towns, John Green wrote pretty explicitly to deconstruct the manic pixie dream girl as a as a trope. And I think there's basically shades of both the actual trope and the deconstruction in Looking for Alaska as well. But based on criticism I've seen of the show, it feels like they got some of the trope and maybe not so much of the deconstruction of the trope.
0: I feel like I could agree with that. And part of that might be because we lost Pudge's inner monologue in the same way. That is a problem that happens with books that are, you know, that first person POV where we get a look into their inner minds and you can't translate that to the screen as well. Um, But I, I also think that a lot of people, and this is something I do kind of want to get into later, I don't know if we want to jump into it yet, I do think people a lot of times really misinterpret his attempts to deconstruct the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, and I think it's a nuance that not a lot of people pay as close of attention to when it comes to breaking it down. So I don't, I that could have played a deep role in it, like...
1: Absolutely. Like, honestly, I think that a lot of the examples of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl that people kind of hold up in popular media are actually deconstructions of it. Um, Especially, obviously, John Green Paper Towns. I still think a little bit looking for Alaska. The other one that I think comes to mind a lot is um, Zoe Deschanel in 500 Days of Summer, which, again, feels like a pretty, pretty on-the-nose deconstruction of that. Like, the ending of that movie is like, oh, hey this picture of her that the main character had in his mind was just not a real person the whole time.
0: Right. I think there's one other um, manic pixie dream girl attempt or trope that I, I don't know that you're as familiar with this one because it turns out like not a lot of people actually watch skins and especially not to the level that I did, but I really, I was very into skins, but long after, not long after it came out, reasonably long after it came out because it was a uk series um but cassie from the original generation of skins is in some ways the manic pixie dream girl except that she's so clearly not because that's part of what skins is is like i don't know it's i didn't have this thought until literally just now so i'm having trouble like (laughs) fully putting it together but like
1: verbalizing it
0: yeah Cassie has, like, you know, a ton of problems. Like, she has an eating disorder. She does a bunch of drugs. She goes to an inpatient rehab. And then, like, but there is this told a lot more, like, through the male character Sid's, like, way it affects his storyline. Less Mm -hmm. so than it, like, explores Cassie's. Though we do at least get a few episodes from, like, cassie being the main character where we see some of the things at home going on that can like break down why she's not just the fun bubbly girl that shows up at parties and you're mm-hmm. in love with um but it, it's not it's really not the focus of the story so i think in some ways it works as that but i don't know that it was intended to be that mm-hmm.
1: yeah i i have not watched skins but i'm sure that is a great example i feel like it's probably present in a lot of media that we just didn't even bother to like think about in preparation for this um but it's definitely it's an interesting trope i think it's kind of a harmful trope most of the time and i think it's interesting that like i feel like john green was sort of accused of it in looking for alaska and he went okay bet and so then he turned around and wrote paper towns to be like Absolutely not, which we'll get to, we're, we're going to keep going through his, his bibliography. We'll get to Paper Towns, and we talked about it a little bit in our last episode with Shara Wheeler as well, but um, certainly an interesting trope. The reason that I will fight for Alaska, looking for Alaska also being a deconstruction, is mainly this one quote where after her death, um, Pudge and his friend, the colonel, um, are like fighting because Pudge doesn't want to go ask Alaska's college boyfriend anything about her death because he's afraid it'll re- basically reveal that she didn't love him. And his friend, the colonel, is like, dude, what what's wrong with you? He goes, don't you know who you love, Pudge? You love the girl who makes you laugh and shows you porn and drinks wine with you. You don't love the crazy, sullen bitch. And there was something to that, truth be told.
0: Yeah, I think the thing with looking for Alaska is he didn't, John... Green is and he didn't dive into it as much until after he got the criticism from it, but it is certainly focused much more on Pudge's introspection about who he is and all of that than it is actually about Alaska in the same way that or in a different way than Paper Towns is also focused on Margot and and Q because that one you spent there is a lot more direct talk about how Margot is is not actually like this idealized version whereas in looking for alaska the only line about it seems to really be like this line you don't know who you love or don't you know who you love and so i think maybe that's why it doesn't read as obviously to people that it it's that that you know the colonel is calling him out for being in love with the idea or, or the good parts of alaska and not really realizing that he then ignores the the bad quote-unquote bad parts of alaska
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. I will say this book also, uh, I don't know if you saw my notes, this is a core horny teen memory of mine. Um, There's a scene where Alaska and Pudge spend the night together, and there's some line about how there are only four layers of fabric between them. They're like boxers, pants, pants, and panties. Um, And that just like made a real impression on my brain. And so every guy I was dating like you know as a teenager all the way through college i was like oh like i would like count the layers of fabric
0: (laughs) am i wearing tights am i not wearing tights (laughs) what if he's not wearing boxers what if you miscounted what if he was just Uh,
1: maybe i got several of them wrong who knows
0: i do remember that scene i think just because it stuck out as like i i'd never thought about someone just like putting porn on their computer and like watching it with a friend
1: Mm-hmm. it was just oh very gosh. that's mortifying to me oh, right <laughs> it's like, such a boy thing to do
0: right it was just so yeah so out of the realm of anything that I like experienced or considered experiencing and I was just like oh my
1: god like don't get me wrong me and some girlfriends got horny in different ways at sleepovers but certainly not by watching porn together like
0: right <laughs> so an abundance what an of age. yeah for real I was just gonna I was just gonna leave it I was going to go to an abundance of Catherines.
1: Oh wait I did want to I did want to point out oh. um this book's quirky main character um trait is that Pudge is obsessed with famous last words
0: So like when a famous person dies he like memorizes the last thing that they said and he he spouts them off like quite frequently throughout the book and it it is very quirky I I can't imagine how that would go over like in real life, to be honest with you.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel that way about a lot of John Green's characters. Like I love them as characters. Like if you throw them into the real world, not going to have a good time.
0: If we were just like talking and someone told me like, oh, did you know like William Howard Taft's last words? I'd be like, no. Like, okay, you came to Taft's Brewing with me, right? Like when you were in Cincinnati, we went there. It's an old church. Yes. Imagine if you just like. We're like, hey, I have this, like, brewery to take you. It's called Tafts. Um, The, you know, the logo is Taft in a bathtub. This is Cincinnati, like. (laughs) Um, And you just, like, looked at me and you're like, did you know the last thing he said before he died and you told me? And I'd be like, you know what? We're not going to this bar anymore. (laughs) Bye. You know what?
1: You know what? Honestly, like, it's the exact type of nerdy that I can absolutely see, like, me or our friend Daniel, like, just, like, knowing all of those. So I don't... It doesn't in it doesn't give me quite as much of a flight or f- fight or flight response as you seem to get, but it is it is a little funny.
0: Maybe it's just the like the morbid level that it's like their last quote before they die. Like if you were to tell me like another fact about famous people that didn't have to do with their death, it might just be like, oh yeah, wow, you've memorized like lots of fun things. Like knowing the high points of every state would not have the same visceral reaction, I guess, as like <laughs> it's you know specifically the last thing you said that before it's death related. <laughs> yeah. yes all
1: right i'll allow that but yeah we can now move on to an abundance of catherine's
0: which i have not read well i read the first three pages last night and (laughs) that is as far as i got in my attempts to read this so
1: yes um i have read it again around the same time i read looking for alaska i started to reread it and got like maybe a quarter of the way through um but I just I just couldn't power through this one. Not because it was bad, it's just because I have other stuff to do and I can't just I couldn't just um sit and listen to an audiobook all day yesterday. So but I did read it and I, I think it imprinted on me a lot because um, it has the correct spelling of Catherine, uh, which is my name.
0: Which if you'll notice I spelled incorrectly in the message to you early earlier today because almost all of the Catherines that go by Catherine In my life, spell it the way I spelled it. The R-Y-N.
1: Yeah, I did notice that you spelled it R-Y-N. And um, if I had not been as busy as I was at work, I would have taken you to task about it. But it's fine. A lot of people I know
0: that spell it correctly go (laughs) Go by by Kathy or Katie. Katie. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway.
1: Anyway, I have strong strong feelings about the spelling of my name. But anyway, an abundance of Catherines. It is about, the pro- the protagonist's name is Colin, and he was, like, a child prodigy, and he's just graduated from high school, and he's very much, like, trying to figure out how he's going to, like, make his mark on the world, because, like, once you're not a child anymore, like, being a prodigy isn't as interesting. Um, and he has also been dumped by his girlfriend, who is named Catherine, who is the 19th Catherine that he has dated. So... To kind of get him out of a, a funk, he and his friend Hassan decide to just go on a road trip, just kind of like an aimless road trip, which I think is interesting. And I think maybe we can circle back to in a minute. But they end up uh, visiting this town called Gutshot, Tennessee which is in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it they visit it because it is supposedly the resting place of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which gives me an opening to tell my favorite story from high school, which is about the time in AP World History when Mr. Marlowe asked the class, what was the inciting incident of World War uh, I? And me, being the little smarty pants know-it-all, raised my hand and said, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And Mr. Marlowe went, ha! You're thinking of Francis Ferdinand. Franz Ferdinand is just a band. I think you've told me this story before. I absolutely have. I tell it every time I am reminded that Franz Ferdinand exists because it makes me so angry. <laughs> I wish I could show you guys Bailey's face right every now. Every time
0: someone mentions Franz Ferdinand, like, how many times does Franz Ferdinand come up in your life?
1: Kind of a lot, because it's a band, and it's got that one song that's popular. Um, and so Daniel will just, like, put that song on playlists to fuck with me.
0: Yeah, okay, so he does, he's fucking with you for that. that. That makes sense. That's something Daniel would do. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, also, yeah. I was thinking, anyway, like, trivia. Take like, Me Out. Take Me Out by Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so all my homies hate Mr. Marlowe because... He was wrong. But anyway, back to an abundance of Catherines. Uh, They visit the supposed resting place of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and they're like, why would it be here in the middle of Tennessee when he was killed in like Austria or whatever? Um, And then they meet a girl who like works in the town, and she offers them a summer job to let them stay with her. And... Uh, Colin begins to fall in love with the girl, she's dating another guy, but that ends and they start dating again. But he also starts um, trying to mathematically prove, uh, he, he basically tries to take all of his previous relationships with Catherine's and put it into a mathematical theorem so that if you plug in like looks, popularity, personality, and like a variety of other factors, it'll like spit out exactly how long the relationship will last. Um, and he gets it, and it works for every for 18 of the 19 Catherines. But for one of the Catherines, it like says that he dumps her, and he's like, That's not possible. I've been dumped by 19 Catherines. And eventually, he learns that uh, he did actually dump this one Catherine. I don't remember the exact story, but it sort of like shifts his worldview that you can either be a dumper or a dumpy. Um, anyway, and then he falls in love with Lindsay. He plugs them into his theorem and it predicts that she'll break up with him in four days and then she like pretends to write him a note saying that she's in love with his friend and then she's like but actually i'm just kidding and then um colin and hassan and Lindsay all continue on their road trip and that's the end
0: i i just need to know like he had just graduated high school and he'd already dated 19 girls what the fuck was i doing with my life
1: I do think it went, like, all the way back to, like, elementary school. Like, I think his first girlfriend was in, like, f- second grade or something. So I, think, I think dating is, like, a, a very loose term. I right. agree it's still a lot, but.
0: I mean, again, it's, like, good fictional story. I just don't know. Because I don't know that many people that had, like, 19 people that they would consider girlfriends by the time that they were 18 years old. Mm-hmm.
1: Also, just, like, specifically 19 Catherines is a very impressive feat.
0: Right. I mean, I get it's for the story. It does make sense in in the context of the story. It's just um, I I don't have the ability to suspend disbelief when it comes to certain things. Some things I'm okay with it. and Some things I'm like, I could never believe that. And there's, like, no difference in the amount of seriousness between believing those two things. It's just, like, for one, my brain is like, absolutely not. Never could not do it. And the other time it's like, yeah, that seems fine anyway yeah like i said i have not read this one um and i remember it being like the more forgotten john green novel i guess i want to say
1: yeah i think that's fair i think it's certainly not as strong as looking for alaska was um so this one came out in 2006 so it was the very next year um it definitely did not have the the buzz that looking for alaska did i still think it was very good um i think it was a little bit weirder because it was way more like nerdy I guess with this whole theorem and by the way I remember I don't have a physical copy of the book right now but there was like a proof of the theorem in the back of the book like he like teamed up with a mathematician and like actually literally made this theorem which was really interesting and I thought that that was so fun um like of a concept again because I was a huge nerd but
0: yeah I can definitely see this appealing more to, like, the nerdy side. And I don't think – it doesn't sound like any of the characters have, like, the same oomph that, like, Alaska had um, or anything like that. So I might still try to read it just because it would be interesting to, to read it through an adult lens for the first time. Because there there is – and we'll get to this as usual. Like, we'll get to everything probably. Um,
1: <laughs> if we remember.
0: Right. there's a criticism always of John Green that like people are like, this novel was not good. It's it's like super cringe. Like these novels aren't written for you and that's, that's okay. And so it's always interesting to read a novel going in and knowing this is not a novel for me. Like I'm an adult, um, but I'm certain if I'd read it when I was younger, I would have found more connection.
1: Yeah. I certainly, it's not one that like made a huge impact on my life, but I certainly enjoyed it as a nerdy math, Girl named Catherine, um, and the uh, the quirk of the character quirk of this novel is that Colin, the main character, loves anagrams, and he actually figured out at the end of the novel that the re- that the actual person it was not the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, but it was Lindsay's great grandfather Fred N. Denzanfer, which I guess is an anagram of Franz Ferdinand. Um, um, I'm not going to figure it out. I'm just going to believe that it is. I also am just going to believe it. I think it is just at a glance. Look, if he
0: went through all the trouble of, like, doing a theorem in the back of the book, I'm certain that he checked his anagram.
1: It also, I don't know if you read the dedication. I know you only read the first few pages, but he dedicated it to his wife, Sarah Urist Green, and he, like, then anagrammed her name a bunch of times. It was really cute.
0: Yeah. Even then, even if, like, he didn't check his anagram, the editor checked the fucking anagram.
1: Oh, for sure.
0: Like, no, I did not read the dedication. I don't read dedications.
1: I, I literally did because it was an audiobook. Um,
0: oh, fair.
1: Oh, here it is To my wife, Sarah Urist Green, anagrammatically. Her great Russian. Grin has treasure. A great risen rush. She is a rut ranger. Anguish arrester. Sister haranger. Treasure, treasure sharing. Heart reassuring. Signature sharer. Easing rare hurts.
0: That is kind of cute. It's
1: very cute.
0: Yeah, but you're right. I, I don't I don't know. I I'm certain there's like interesting things in dedications all the time. There's also probably shit that would piss me off. Like every once in a while, some author's gonna have some really shitty take in their dedication. Um, so I'm not gonna read I'm gonna continue to not read anything until the first page, which has previously meant that I've accidentally skipped like prologues or prefaces that are like definitely meant to be read and important, but I'm just like, that doesn't look like novel yet. <laughs> fuck you copyright page
1: yep that seems fair
0: all right is is it paper towns time
1: it is next up in john green's bibliography is paper towns released 2008 which we have both read recently i believe
0: yes um and i also if you want to hear the summary i think you should just go listen to the i Kiss char <laughs> wheeler episode because we did briefly summarize it in there given the like large number of comparisons we made but also short... I just
1: want to give a shout out to our friend Nicole who started the Shara Wheeler episode and texted us that it reminded her of Paper Towns before we had even said it. So, yes, shout out Nicole.
0: She was like, "Oh, I started this episode. It reminds me of Paper Towns." And then she was like, "Oh, you guys, you guys talk about that." <laughs> and like I just didn't <laughs> respond until after sh- cuz I was like, she's going to keep listening.
1: I was like, I don't know if she like has gotten to that part yet or not, but anyway, I feel very smug and proud and happy.
0: Yeah, so in brief, in Paper Towns, Quentin grows up next to Margot. He, like, has this idea. They hung out all the time as kids, but they grew apart in high school. And then one day, um, Margot just, like, shows up in his window and is like, grab your parent, your parents' minivan. We're, like, sneaking out to do adventures. And they, like, leave dead fish all over town. They torment her boyfriend who cheated on her. They break into SeaWorld. Um, and then she disappears the next day. And the rest of the novel is Q and his friends like following this series of clues and they find Margot in upstate New York after like a wild seventeen hour road trip from Orlando, Florida. And turns out like Margot never wanted to be found um necessarily. And anyways, they do find her and then they leave because is gonna stay.
1: Yeah, uh I feel like we talked about it a lot in Shower Wheeler. I love Paper Towns. I love the movie. I rewatched the movie, um, a week ago or so uh, notably the uh, acting debut of Cara Delevingne which is interesting uh, she did a good job in this role I think um, she really plays the manic pixie dream girl who's not really a manic pixie dream girl well which I thought was fun
0: I I think I definitely started out like I'm pretty sure I said it last episode I'll have to go back and listen to myself I was like I haven't read this Or maybe I have. But then when I was reading it this time, I was like, I definitely read this. Like, I definitely read Paper Towns. Um, And I I liked it this time. I had a lot of problems with it. And I think those are, again, like, they're not... uh, At least one of them is is somewhat of a real problem. Um, A lot of it was just like, this isn't the book. Like, this isn't my audience. And that's fine. And it's very clear that, like, there are a lot of the same elements that Looking for Alaska has, that I liked in Looking for Alaska, and I probably don't like in Paper Towns because I don't have the nostalgia associated with it. And, and that's, that's fully it, and I recognize that. Um, there, there are a couple things that didn't age well, I guess, from Paper Towns.
1: Yeah, they definitely, I'm assuming you mean, like, the language and stuff, like, they use the, the slur, slur yeah. quite a bit. Um And I think it you know, we can give it a little bit of grace as like being a product of the time. Like that was sort of before we really realized how bad that word was or like right about that time. Um, but also I think that John Green has shown enough good faith in like growing as a person, as an author um, that I think that it's kind of okay to like mention it and like, we don't love it, but like, I, don't, I don't know that we necessarily need to dwell on it. And especially I think it would be, would have been very authentic for like, a boy that age at that time to be speaking that way.
0: Yeah, which can be, like, not the best argument to make because that's the same as if, like, you know, um, a white author were to use the N slur in a book because it was put in, like, the late 1800s. Be Like, well, they would have said that. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean we need it. But we do now know that that, like, those, both of those slurs are something we shouldn't use. And as you said, like, with the R slur, that's not something that had been, really recognized or talked about yet about how the history behind the word and it would have been something that a bunch of high schoolers would have absolutely been saying in in 2008
1: yeah i li- i literally think that that was around the time when we were kind of started starting to be discouraged from saying it but like up until around then it was very common um, which again not an excuse you know just just kind of an acknowledgement of what was going yeah, on at the time
0: it's definitely something that if, if you don't want to read that word, don't read that book. It is used throughout. It's a fair um, amount, yeah. Yeah. And then um, one of the other things that just really I struck me as really fucking odd and I it stuck with me. It's like when Q goes to that party after prom to like pick up his drunk friends and Becca and Jason are hooking up. Like, the narration makes a point that, like, Q stuck around in the doorway because he wanted to see Becca naked.
1: Ew, I missed that part, or I scrubbed it from my brain.
0: Yeah, and I really, I really hated that part, and I was like, I'm certain this is, like, based in reality of someone's experience and that there are people that do this, but I just really felt uncomfortable with it, and I was like, oh, I can't believe that this, like, made it in there, that, he was going to like stick around.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's a very male perspective um, Which... because oh, which I gonna, oh, I was just Oh, I was just
0: going to say I think that, that uh, there's been a significant amount of criticism at least that I'm aware of for John, to John Green that it is a lot of his perspectives are like young male and therefore sometimes like icky.
1: Mhm. And I think that's kind of interesting that his first three books were male protagonists, male point of views, and then his next two fiction books um, switched to female point of view. So I wonder if he like took that criticism and like as a way to ch- kind of grow out of it or grow from it. Maybe that's the reason why he switched perspectives. I don't know. That's completely just throwing stuff at the wall speculation. But when we have John Green on our trend. podcast. <laughs> yeah. when we John, have John Green, Green on, tell us why you switched
0: perspective. That will be a question we'll have to ask. Like, was this just happenstance or was there like a conscious effort to change? Because also there's four years between Paper Towns and The Fault in Our Stars.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something else I found really interesting is that, you know, 2005, 2006, 2008, a little bit of gap. And then 2012 for Fault in Our Stars and three more years for Turtles all the way down. So he's definitely slowed down um, his production rate which is totally fair especially as he has you know we've named a few of his billion jobs um and he also i'm sure is making enough money off of his back catalog that he doesn't have to you know crank a book out just so he can eat or whatever but and he also
0: has a, a family and kids who i assume were growing up during some of these years that meant he had less less time for writing um there's one more thing with paper towns that i realized while reading today the paper town featured in upstate new york um, Al- I literally Ag- just- aglo aglo. It is in the cartographers. It's the paper town what? that is in the cartographers. Oh
1: my I'm gosh! Like I still haven't sure. read that yet. I'll need to.
0: Oh my god! I'm so sorry.
1: No, no, no. That's I okay. I don't
0: think it's a major spoiler.
1: I will forget it by the time I read it anyway, because okay. my brain is a sieve. But that's so funny.
0: I-, I just think it was like one of the prominent paper towns, like, so it. You know,
1: that's very cool. I think you're right. I I pulled up, I googled it, um, inspired by the real life mystery of aglo New York.
0: Yeah. So I, it yeah, just like that connection was fun. I won't tell you how they they connect. Um,
1: <laughs> or like I won't Again, tell you what happens to the cartographers. Anyway, so it's
0: fine. Yeah, I won't tell you what happens to the cartographers, but it was just like, you know, I was listening to Paper Towns, and the whole time I was like why does the name of this town sound like vaguely familiar? It's like, isn't it weird that both of them would place their paper towns in New York? (laughs) And this is not at all to say that like, um, paper town or cartographers was like copying paper towns for that. I think, again, it is like one of the most prominent copyright towns in, Mm -hmm. in the lore of paper town, lore of paper, not lore, lore. Oh, not you, whatever. (laughs) Um, so so it makes sense to use them, but it just, like, it, it also struck me as funny how long it took me to, like, realize that and look it up. I, like, stopped my run to Google it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that. That's so fun.
0: I actually stopped my run because it was hot, but I want to, you know, be cool and, and sound really, like, fit and cool on the podcast. It's fine.
1: Also extremely cool. Um, I don't know. I feel like we, we talked about Paper Towns a lot in the last episode. It is, I think it's maybe my favorite John Green novel. Um, there's a huge nostalgia factor for me um and i really i really love what he did with the the like purposeful deconstruction of the manic pixie dream girl and there's a quote from um him about it it's paper towns is devoted in its entirety to de- destroying the lie of the manic pixie dream girl i do not know how i could have been less ambiguous about this without calling the novel the patriarchal lie of the manic pixie dream girl must be stabbed in the heart and killed
0: right and that's what I mean, I think it's, like, fairly obvious. It's almost fucking ham-fisted. hmm Like, how he, he, the whole journey is, like, Quentin realizing, and especially at the end, he very much explicitly states, like, I realized I was a- in love with, like, an idea of Margot, and even Margot is, like, and I was holding on to this idea of you, and I never bothered to see if you could be that person.
1: yeah. I have one of those quotes pulled up too. Uh, I think last episode I did the, the quote about how like everyone the mirror had quote. a different version of Margot and it was more of a mirror. And then there was also this one, which I think was from Quentin. Marga Roth Spiegelman was a person too, and I had never quite thought of her that way. Not really. Not really. It was a failure of all my previous imaginings. All along, not only since she left, but for a decade before, I had been imagining her without listening the fundamental mistake I had always made and that she had in fairness always led me to make was this. Margot was not a miracle. She was not an adventure. She was not a fine and precious thing. She was a girl.
0: Yeah. And there's even, I don't have the exact quote pulled up because I'm never as prepared with quotes as Katie, but (laughs) there there's even a line where she's like, you know, I purposefully cultivated this, this paper girl.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And now I'm realizing that I hate, hate it Mm -hmm. in the end. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, like, they, they go on this long journey, and Quentin is, is racing around Orlando finding these clues that, like I said with Shara Wheeler, I feel like, you know, these clues are all so, like, thin and lucky and happenstance, and they just don't make sense that someone would go through all of that, but, like, it does work. And then when he gets there, she's like, I I was trying not to leave all of those clues. Mm-hmm. Like the words painted on the wall in the mini mall. Like, you know, I didn't, this isn't, this wasn't intended to be some hunt for you to find me. And he was like, but that was the idea that Q had of her. Mm-hmm. That's the whole breakdown of the manic pixie dream girl trope. Like, and again, people continue, even like recently, I just Googled some like reviews. People continue to miss the point and be like, uh-huh, he, he, he had Manic Pixie Dream Girl, blah, blah, blah. Like,
1: yeah, it astounds me the degree to which people misunderstand John Green and the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And I I want to be generous and chalk, chalk it up to people, like, that are young making these criticisms. I think a lot of the, like, articles, because I was Googling about, you know, people's opinions about John and the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, and a lot of them are, like, Blog posts that seem like maybe they were by teenagers, or um you know, Tumblr posts, or you know, whatever. I, I, I think a lot of the criticism just comes from young people. But at the same time, like, I really don't know how he could have made it more explicit in Paper Town.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting, and it does. It's just so, again, as an adult, like, reading it, there's so much cringe. But I honestly think like the cringe stuff does work like the teenage boys so they can be so like like that like one of the criticisms I saw was like you have pointed out the um like you know quirky character trait of a lot of the characters in John Green's novels and someone like pointed out like how annoying it was that they all had quirky traits and I was like but that's the thing like kids do that trying to figure out who they are and yeah is you know the death quote thing kind of weird i guess maybe that's not one people have in real life but like everybody's trying to figure out who they are and is they want to have a thing that like makes them i don't know what word i want to use here like important or unique
1: they want something that distinguishes them from their peers And makes them feel like a real person. And I think it kind of goes back to like Margot saying that she's a paper girl, right? Like, we don't want to feel paper. Like, we want to feel like we have substance. And I think that a lot of times the way that young people do that is by um, kind of over-intellectualizing themselves. And I think that another big criticism that John Green gets a lot is that his teenagers, like, quote-unquote, don't sound like teenagers. Like, they speak very philosophically. Um, And that's something that I was going to talk about, especially with... The Fault in Our Stars. I think Augustus gets that criticism a ton. And I think it's a fair criticism, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's okay for fictional teens to like kind of self aggrandize because it's sort of like, you know, the inner monologue of teens I think does often sound like that or similar to that like that or if it doesn't sound like that it's still what they're trying to do right they're still trying to self aggrandize themselves and find that within themselves and so even if that doesn't come across with how they actually speak i think it's very true to the nature of a lot of teens
0: i really think that that is exactly what i was feeling but way better than i would have been able to say it like the one of the things that we discussed briefly in Char Wheeler is like how self important some of the characters were and how it was like annoying. I get annoying. not the right word, but how like real it was that they were that self-important. And so teenagers mm-hmm. do do that. Maybe they don't do it as eloquently as John Green's characters do, but a lot of being a teenager is like being the center of your universe, but also thinking about all the things that are next. Like Margo and Q talk a lot about like college and kids and, families and blah 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 and like that's something teens are starting to realize is that like the future is something they need to think about especially when like their high schools are like what are you doing for college what are you going to major and where are you going to go it's important to go somewhere that has a good program for what you want to do blah 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 so i i think that yeah maybe the voice is a valid criticism but the criticism of of teenagers like thinking about themselves is not a valid criticism
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah I like i i remember being that self-involved and i mean in, this, in a lot of ways you know i feel like we still are as adults but we learn how to contextualize it better because we have more life experience um, yeah it's just it's one of those things that like it's not a knock against younger people it's just like literally you learn how to be more empathetic with experience and you can only get experience by aging so
0: yeah like we've all did like cringe shit i Oh, of course, of course. Like, and I was it was the cringiest was,
1: motherfucker.
0: And it was so important to us at the time that we did whatever this fucking cringy thing was.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, it was our
1: identity—that's
0: what I mean. Like, I was reading this, and even though sometimes I found myself getting annoyed at Q, I was like, "But wait, that is like, that's just real." And I think it—that's part of why John Green was able to capture the YA audience so fully when these books were new is because it was the first time, not the first time, I don't want to say that like he was the first one to ever do this.
1: No. Yeah. There's definitely but, lots of, of great YA literature, but I think he definitely he, has a a special relationship with. He was one of the
0: bigger authors to come through. And one of the more popular set of books that were able to encompass that feeling.
1: It's very much, um, you know, there's this quote again. I I, I feel like I, always do this and i apologize again for invoking george r, r. martin and a song of ice and fire but there was this quote where somebody asked george r. r martin like how he got such realistic and interesting female characters and he responded well you know i've always thought of female characters and women as people and i feel like that's what john green does for teenagers right like he just sees teenagers as people and he understands i think in a pretty unique way the the depth of their struggles and their like internal crises Um, but he just you know they're just people and he's just writing them as people
0: right and I think we see that criticism a lot with various media is that like a lot of times adults forget that not just teenagers but also children are like people who have experiences Mm -hmm. and thoughts inner monologues feelings that like they don't just exist to fill the space in the story always Mm -hmm. and I think I see that a lot more with with kids with like I don't know why, but I'm on gentle parenting parenting TikToks. I am
1: too. Do you Okay, see I mean Jonathan like Carter? Mama Mama
0: Cusses is, is her at that's her at. She's like one of my favorite. Um but like I see sometimes that a lot of, like they're like honestly I just remember my kid is, like, you know, a human and that changes how I relate to them because they're not just like someone to be like taken care of and shuffled around. Like this is a human who has feelings and I asked them about it, and that's how we like do some of this gentle parenting stuff. Parenting. Why can't I not use the right word today? <laughs> parenting. <laughs> parenting. Um. Anyway, so I feel like hard. that's just the whole that comes back around to it too. But I do want to point out this one criticism I read. Um. And this is definitely mm-hmm. just like a blog post from a young person, but it's like, um, what kind of like what's with the habit of quote interesting end quote nicknames? Like radar. Um, and I just want to point out that, like, did you not have dumb nicknames?
1: Yeah, like, I was curly for like a year in middle school. I was called, I was just called Texas for like a year in junior high because I had moved to Illinois for, from Texas. And then somebody else moved from Texas and they started calling her Texas.
0: Uh, they missed weird. the opportunity to call her T2. Um, <laughs> in college, I had a friend that went almost exclusively by T Money.
1: Yeah, it feels very authentic to me,
0: right? And so I was just like, I now I will admit that the the author of this blog post does appear to be from the UK, and so maybe their experience is like pretty different. But I read that.
1: just anecdotally I think that nickname culture is very different in the UK because you see like on their like list of top names like a lot of their top names are just nicknames whereas in America we like largely prefer to give quote unquote full names um, so like most people in the US even if they're gonna be called Katie like Katie is not their full name but I think it's much more common in the UK to just like name your child Katie.
0: Yeah. I I don't know. I just read that and I thought it was funny. I was like, yeah, no, like having weird nicknames was definitely a thing. And I'm sure given enough time, like I will come up with high school examples. But Mm -hmm. the one that I just remember off the bat is like, we had um, a college buddy that we called T-Money. And actually we had another college buddy whose nickname was not just his last name. It was like a bastardized pronunciation of his last (laughs) name. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to like call out everybody too much. Um, Sure. But... Yeah, so, like, that that would be totally normal. That and just, like, I had a college friend who's... I didn't realize the name everybody called him wasn't his first name until after college. Wow. Or, no, I guess it was, like, late senior year when I found out he had a brother who I'd known almost the same amount of time and I had no idea they were related or that their their last name, their first name... I Look, like, it, nicknames are fine. If someone tells me what somebody goes by, I just, like accept that unless it's obviously like super problematic you know what i mean like i'm not gonna be like oh that's it that's an interesting name is that like your full legal name (laughs)
1: like yeah oh my gosh
0: so anyway that was just a a fun note in that criticism um Uh but the rest of that post basically misses the entire point of the manic pixie dream girl takedown and how this is like all about q having to save Margot and how like boring and dumb that is, and I'm like, no, the whole point is never mind. You know the, what? You missed the like, point, Bessie. Well,
1: well, it's like the point is that you're correct, and then the novel acknowledges that you're correct, and then yeah, it's, <laughs>
0: this is this is like when we see you're you're criticizing what the novel is criticizing. This is like when we see posts about um, the name of the wind and Koth being like <laughs> um, OP
1: and like a Mary Sue.
0: Yeah, like a Gary Sue, and it's like, yes, He's yes, telling of the story. <laughs> of course he is. I just don't understand like
1: And I don't Congrats, ever feel bestie, like I'm, you've encountered the point. Right? Like I don't
0: feel like I'm that critical of a reader. I often miss like more abstract themes that come through in books. Mm-hmm. And like even I tripped over that point. <laughs> like I mean, I don't even like. I literally, we all know this by now. I literally read these violent delights and was like, weird. This is kind of like (laughs) Romeo and Juliet.
1: (laughs) Like Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) 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 Hi, friends. It's Editing Katie here, dropping in to surprise you and us by letting you know that we talked about John Green for damn near two hours for this episode. So to spare you guys, as well as to spare us, we've decided to turn it into a two-parter. So we hope that you've enjoyed the first part of our John Green special, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the second part to continue talking through John Green's works, as well as a little bit about our overall thoughts about him and his work. So until then, don't forget that we are right, and we should say it. Pour yourself a glass of wine Let's start
0: reading in between the lines. Never know what we might find. Yeah,
1: it could be magic. Oh, 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 oh. Prose Tinted Glasses is hosted by Bailey Utrecht and me, Katie Phillips. Our theme song is by the Pro very talented Anna Boss, and our logo is by Baby Truth Collection. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to finish out our thoughts on John Green. In the meantime, if you can rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, it'll really help us grow. Have a good one. Wow, it felt really weird and bad to say we are right and we should say it without Bailey. Don't worry, you'll get us both back in a couple of weeks.